This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Brothers and sisters, it's a real joy for me to be addressing the University College Dublin chapter of the Thomistic Institute this evening. I wish I could be with you in person, but this online lecture will have to do for the moment. I'll be speaking tonight about St. Albert the Great and the natural sciences. He's a figure who's close to my heart for two main reasons, and they're the two reasons I'm keen to give this lecture this evening. Firstly, because along with other medieval naturalists, he shows how false is the idea that science went extinct during the Middle Ages. I was a science undergraduate some years ago myself, and as a practicing Catholic, I had to get used to challenging my friends on this topic. And in doing so, I had to read up on the history of science. Now, nobody who has studied this subject seriously could buy the old model of the Middle Ages as an age of ignorance, an age of authority, an age during which curiosity was stamped out. But these ideas, even if they're debunked by scholars, they're still very common at a popular level. So just to give you an example, a few months ago, I met a young man, a graduate, in fact, of your university, so very well educated young man, who calmly told me in the course of conversation, informed me that um, the idea of evidence, backing up a claim with evidence, only occurred to the human mind at some point in the 19th century. And you can imagine my reaction at the time. And as well as this, history textbooks in Irish schools, they still peddle the idea, easily debunked, that everyone in the Middle Ages thought the earth was flat. And they were terrified that Christopher Columbus would sail off the edge of the planet. Now, taking a look at the life and works of Albert the Great is an excellent way to show how ignorant these contemporary claims are and just how little they are backed up by evidence. So, that's the first reason I like Albert. It's for the apologetic power of his example. He shows in his life and works the harmony that can exist between a life of faith and the study of nature. The second reason is a little deeper. It's to do with the fact that the scientific enterprise, something wonderful in itself, is often accompanied by a certain attitude, a stance, that in fact has no intrinsic association with science as such. This attitude is often called scientism, and among other things, it includes the belief that the scientific method is uniquely placed to give us access to reality, that all questions we might ask can and ought to be reduced to questions that the scientific method can resolve. This attitude of scientism expects the scientific enterprise gradually to exclude dusty old notions like creation and providence and ancient practices like prayer and to supplant disciplines like philosophy and theology. Now, humans are weak and have to deal with uncertainty, but science and technology, so says scientism, give us power and control. They extend over the natural world, the empire of man. 
this attitude towards the scientific enterprise, I think we'd all agree, is fairly common today. And C.S. Lewis, for one, in his Abolition of Man, blames it on the historical context of the scientific revolution, the so-called scientific revolution of the early modern period. It might be going too far to say, says Lewis, that the modern scientific movement was tainted from its birth, but I think it would be true to say that it was born in an un unhealthy neighbourhood and at an inauspicious hour. It's the first quotation on your handout. The early modern period, Lewis is suggesting, because it was an age of empire and expansion and subjugation of foreign peoples, was not strong on humility. And so the scientific movement that traces its origins back to people like Francis Bacon was always going to have an issue with power and control. And of course, the worship of God against this background is going to seem to go against the grain of science, since it involves letting go of power and control and recognizing another empire, the providence of God. It's not difficult for us to see some of the consequences of scientism in our own time. So, for example, rather than really popularizing science, rather than our seeing the study of the natural world as something accessible to all, we often view scientists as utterly other, utterly authoritative, superhumans with unique access to truth, whose oracles we must follow and obey. In the popular imagination, scientists are very much not like us. Now, real scientists, of course, are nothing like this. And we know, if you've engaged in any kinds of science yourself, we know that science thrives, in fact, on disagreement, not on the imposition of consensus. The late great visionary physicist Freeman Dyson, he lamented the fact, in text number two on your handout, he lamented the fact that many people today view science as a collection of truths rather than the exploration of mysteries. So how to regain this sense of science as exploration? Does science need, as C.S. Lewis suggested, does science need somehow to repent of its overweening claims? Is it possible in our time to give birth to what Lewis calls a new natural philosophy? one purified of the ideology of scientism and more in harmony with attitudes that come naturally to Christian believers like wonder, praise and thanksgiving. If moving towards a new natural philosophy is possible and desirable, I think the example of Albert the Great will help us along the way. And this then is the second reason I'm proposing we pay attention to him tonight. His life and works suggests to us a way of being in the world, a way of being open to the world that is equally congenial to Christian faith and scientific discovery. Now, before turning to Albert's uh, life, we've got to consider Albert's world. He lived from about 1200 to 1280, so he was a man of the 13th century. And in order to appreciate his significance, we've got to have a grasp of three developments that shaped that period. The birth of universities, the influx of new texts in philosophy, 
including in natural philosophy, and the founding of orders of preaching friars, especially the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Now you'll know, I'm sure, that throughout the early Middle Ages, schools associated with monasteries and cathedrals had been carrying on basic instruction in the liberal arts, grammar, rhetoric, logic, astronomy, arithmetic, geometry, and music. These disciplines taught in cathedral and monastery schools were the backbone of the intellectual life of Christendom. Some of these schools grew in importance, but often their work was undermined periodically by interference from local authorities, whether civic leaders or bishops. In the late 12th and early 13th centuries, students and teachers in some important cities, especially Paris and Bologna, began clubbing together in associations aimed at protecting their respective rights. These associations were called universitates, and usually with papal support, this institutional setup provided the necessary framework for stable teaching and research. And these stable environments began quickly to attract great numbers of students from across the Christian world. Now, importantly, at the same time as this institutional framework is developing, new texts are becoming available in Europe and in the Latin language. And really new old texts. Because thanks to recent reconquest in Spain and the south of Italy, whole libraries of Arab learning came into Christian possession. Arab learning which, thanks in part to its continuous access to ancient Greek learning, was far more advanced than that of the West. So these works, sometimes Arabic translations of Aristotle's works, or also original works by people like Avicenna and Averroes and others, these works were progressively translated into Latin, and they lit up the intellectual scene, sometimes causing controversy, not just in theology, but also in schools of medicine. But generally, what emerges is that the full range of the thought, above all, of Aristotle, comes to be accepted and appreciated. Aristotle, who had written on every conceivable topic in ethics, metaphysics, and natural philosophy. So the birth of universities is simultaneous with a rebirth of philosophy. In Aristotle's text, the men of the universities, they find new information, new ideas, and perhaps most importantly for us tonight, a disciplined method for gaining and organizing knowledge about the natural world based on sense perception and careful reasoning. So, the universities are born, Aristotelian philosophy is reborn in the West, and at the same time the preaching of the Gospel is given new life too. In the early 13th century, Francis and Dominic and their respective bands of preachers, they explode across Europe and beyond with the aim of sharing the Gospel in ways that will lead their hearers to salvation. Now, people who think that faith and reason are necessarily opposed, they might expect these fervent preachers to have nothing at all to do with universities. But we, of course, know that reason and Christian faith are old friends, so we're not surprised that, 
the friars from the beginning, especially for the Dominicans, the friars from the beginning get involved in the world of universities. So Dominic, for example, sent friars to Paris and Bologna, the two major university towns. He was active in what we would call campus ministry himself. In Bologna, we know he visited student residences to spend time chatting with students. In Paris, the friars weren't allowed initially to preach around the town, so Dominic and his brothers would invite students and lecturers at the university to come to their priory for prayer and conversation. His successor, Jordan, would preach Lenten missions, one year at Paris, the next at Bologna. And many, many university men, students and masters, joined the order at this time. Not only theologians, but lawyers, medics and masters of arts, that is, masters of logic, astronomy, geometry and so on. So the Dominicans from the beginning were naturally at home in this new world of universities. The vast majority of preaching friars did not, of course, study at university, but each Dominican priory was meant to have one brother who was appointed lector, and he was usually university educated. He would teach the members of the priory. So every day the friars would gather for lectures on the Bible and lectures on theological or pastoral questions. So of course Dominican priories were places of prayer, but they were also communities of study. And the idea here was that the preaching of the friars would be kept lively and interesting if they were continuously studying. As one early Dominican put it, first the bow is bent in study, then the arrow is released in preaching. And our own St. Albert, uh, he famously defined study as seeking the truth in the sweetness of friendship, um, and above all in the sweetness of the friendship that is fraternity in the Dominican life. So this world of study and preaching is the world of Albert. We're not exactly sure when he was born, but sometime around the beginning of the 13th century is a decent guess. He was from Lauingen in Bavaria, on the banks of the Danube, where he's commemorated with a statue in front of the town hall today. We know very little about his childhood, although he does tell us a few stories about things that he observed in nature when he was young. So this gives us an indication of his personality, even as a child, this curious personality that's observing the world around him. So he talks about going to hunt pigeons as a young lad with the help of dogs and hawks. And he remembers in detail how the pigeons would behave as they were being hunted. And as well as this, he has lots of stories about the behavior of different kinds of fish in the Danube, including the fact that some fish have a certain kind of hibernation. And it's likely that these observations on the Danube were carried out when Albert was young. This early interest in the natural world might be what led him to Padua and the beginnings of the university there. Padua was already famous at this stage for the study of natural philosophy or the natural sciences. He was there, we know, around the age of 22 because he tells us that he was there in his book on meteorology. He tells us that he witnessed an earthquake at that age. What did he study there? It's thought that he studied arts, but he possibly graduated to the study of medicine as well. 
just as one possible bit of evidence for this claim, Albert tells us in one of his works that he heard of a woman in Padua who had fasted for 45 days and survived. And this shows at least that when he was in Padua, he had a certain interest in human biology. Now, while a student in Padua, Albert hears the preaching of the famous Jordan of Saxony, whom we've mentioned, and he feels called then to devote his life to the preaching of the gospel. It seems he hesitated for a few years, but eventually he enters the order, probably around the age of 30. He would have undergone his initial training then as a friar, especially his studies of scripture. And just a few years later, we find him as lector, teaching the brothers first in the priory of Hildesheim, then Freiburg, then Regensburg, Strasbourg, and Cologne. After teaching theology to the brothers for 10 years or so, he sent to Paris to do further studies in theology at the great center for theological studies. There he becomes master of theology and he teaches there for three years or so, not only teaching theology, but also getting to know the full extent of Aristotle's writings. And it's worth noting that although Albert is clearly very involved in the world of universities, he's only officially teaching at a university for these three years. But then he's asked by his superiors in the order to go back to Cologne, to set up a new center for advanced studies in theology for Dominicans. And he takes with him his best students from Paris. So Thomas of Contempré, for example, who wrote a famous um, encyclopedia and also wrote a book of 300 stories, 300 preachable stories about bees. Also Ulrich of Strasbourg, who became a lifelong collaborator of Albert's and a certain quiet Italian by the name of Thomas Aquinas. From this time until his death in 1280, Albert is constantly kept busy in an absolutely extraordinary range of activities. Every time I go back to, to study his life, I'm just stunned at the fact that this is one life, the life of one man, because he did so much and carried out so many varied activities. So, for example, very often he's called on to mediate in disputes, disputes between various political groups, disputes between bishops and people. Again and again, he's called back to Cologne to mediate in this, the dispute between the bishop and the people of Cologne. Also, he's called on to be the superior of all the Dominicans in the German-speaking region. And this involves, for him, visiting many Dominican houses by foot. This is very important to him. He was very strict on the idea that uh, friars shouldn't travel by horse. So he travels and visits houses by foot, houses as far apart as Riga in Latvia and Alsace. Then briefly, for three years, he is Bishop of Regensburg and has to tidy up a diocese that had spun out of control. As well, he founds monasteries of nuns, one of which becomes an important centre for the intellectual life. Um, so it seems there that he uh, was interested in promoting study among women as well. Also as a writer of systematic theology and a commentator on scripture. He wrote commentaries on Luke and John and other books. As well, he wrote beautiful devotional works um, on the Eucharist and on Our Lady. And of course, his fundamental identity, he was a preacher and a man of prayer. 
His students report, according to one of his biographers, that he would recite all 150 psalms every day, and that he deeply loved the personal reading of scripture and meditation, and that sometimes when he was commenting on books, he would summarize the books into concise little prayers so as to show his students how study leads, leads us to praise God. But alongside all of these activities, for about 20 years, Albert attempted to write commentaries on all the works of Aristotle. This is perhaps what he's best known for. And he tells us in text number three on your handout, he tells us the reason for doing this. Because the brothers, students among the Dominicans, asked him to do this. They're interested in getting to know the full range of Aristotle's thought and they need help. And so Albert provides this help with his commentaries. They're meant to be companion pieces to Aristotle's own works, but Albert doesn't just explain what Aristotle is saying. He goes much further than that. He includes what he calls digressions, which include alternative theories, the theories of Galen, the medical thinker, or Avicenna, for example. And in these digressions, he even sometimes flatly contradicts Aristotle, based partly on his own observations, as we'll see. So, alongside all of his administration, problem-solving, leadership in the church, preaching and prayer, Albert, from about 1250 to 1270, writes these major tomes on physics, astronomy, geography, the elements, meteorology, minerals, plants, the census, memory, sleep, respiration, animal biology, the De Animalibus, including human biology, and old age, and so on, and so on. And it's to them now we turn to get a taste of his mind and his methods. Rather than trying to sample everything he wrote, which would be impossible, we'll just have a look first at some of his writing on animals, then plants, and then minerals, which should give us a decent insight into his approach. Albert, I think it's fair to say, is best known for his work on animals, and probably specifically for his work on falcons and hawks, which was excerpted from his big De Animalibus and circulated separately in the Middle Ages for the benefit of falconers. The De Animalibus itself has a very intricate structure. Albert explains that he will begin by categorizing animals by how they are composed, their anatomy, by their function, their physiology, and by how they reproduce. And then after categorizing them, he will explain the causes of these features. And he explains that he'll begin with the most perfect of animals, the human. And so he includes a full discussion of human anatomy before moving on to a discussion of animal morphology, behavior, and so on. If you look at text number four and five on your handout, you'll see clearly that Albert, in carrying out this work, isn't completely deferential to the authority of Aristotle. He trusts Aristotle and other investigators, as I mentioned, but he wants to assess his theories for himself by his own experience. This approach is very typical of Albert, as we'll see. And Albert elsewhere explains the reasons underlying this method that emphasizes 
his own personal sense experience of things. In text 6 to 10 on your handout, you'll see some short passages which um, go some way towards explaining why it's important to test theory by sense experience. He explains that natural philosophy isn't like other branches of philosophy because it must start with particular individual things, this rat, this oak tree, this human. And so we can't just proceed by deduction from general principles. We must take our sense experiences into account. And because sense experience is fallible, repeated observations are necessary. Now, Albert didn't have a laboratory in which to carry out repeated experiments, but he realized that there were people who had effectively carried out repeated observations of natural phenomena over time. Shepherds, for example, he says, are experts in sheep behavior. Those who hunt beavers are experts in beaver behavior, and so on. Just to stick with human biology, when Albert discusses embryology, and he has a long and detailed discussion of the development um, of the growing human in the womb, when he discusses this topic, he presents ideas that he has read about and what he has heard from natural philosophers and medics and so on. But interestingly, he includes the testimony of mothers themselves. If you look at uh, text number 10, on uh, 11 on your handout, um, you'll see that clearly. In matters such as these, a great deal of credence must be placed in women worthy of trust who have given birth to a number of children. So for Albert, expert doesn't just mean somebody with qualifications or prestige. It means a sensible, trustworthy person with a lot of experience in a given area. And you'll see the etymological link between experience and expert there. So when Albert discusses animals, this is exactly how he proceeds. He takes seriously what he has read in texts, but he tests that against what he has seen with his own eyes and what experienced others tell him. So, for example, he mentions what he has heard from people who are experienced in peacocks or beavers. He mentions what bird hunters think, and he makes use of what these fowlers think to contradict the authority of Avicenna. He tells us a great story about, he says, one of the experts who saw, as he watched in the woods, he saw a wolf pick up a huge branch in its mouth that weighed, he says, 30 or 40 pounds. And then the wolf leaps up onto a trunk of a tree that had recently been cut down and he hides himself in that way. And a pig passes and you can imagine what happens next. It doesn't end well for the poor pig. A falconer as well, who has taken many a falcon, tells Albert that a father falcon doesn't permit his son to be in the same area as he is after the son has become ready uh, to hunt himself. So Albert is listening to these experts, these experienced people who have uh, been observing the natural world for a long time. And his own observations come in also at every stage of his analysis. So, as we mentioned, he remembers the behavior of hunted pigeons and hibernating fish from his youth. He says that he has read in books about the anatomy of bees, but more importantly, I myself have experienced the anatomy of bees. 
I myself, he says, have experienced also that pigs eat bacon with great greediness. So he's discussing their animal cannibalism. I myself have seen, he says, an eel feed on a frog, worms and fish parts. And he's using this, his own sense experience, to prove Aristotle wrong. Aristotle who had said that eels feed on slime. And the fact that he lists those three things, frogs, worms and fish parts, it, you can almost imagine a certain kind of an experiment in a, in a pond where he or one of his friends has found an eel and is testing Aristotle's theory with these different types of food. Similarly, he says, I myself have experienced fish fleeing the smell of sulfur, copper and flax that has been putrefied. And he concludes, fish therefore have the sense of smell, even if they don't have uh, protruding noses like we do. And so again, sulfur, copper and flax that has been putrefied. I think we're invited here to imagine an experiment and somebody dipping each of these um, into a pond and observing the behavior of the fish. He says as well, I have first-hand knowledge of the anatomy of the serpent's head. How did Albert find snakes to study? Well, he came across at some point some snake hunters and he asked them to bring him up into the mountains where they knew there were snakes. He tells us this. So that curiosity of his again is so evident. And he even mentions field trips that he went on that seemed to be not only that he was accidentally observing the natural world around him, but that he went on trips deliberately to experience different environments. So he says, I myself, as I set forth on the sea for the sake of gaining experience, that's key, for the sake of gaining experience, sailing to islands and beaches, I myself have collected with my own hands 10 to 11 genuses or categories of sea creatures. We know nothing else about this marine trip or when it happened, whether it was before he joined the Dominican friars or afterwards, but he mentions elsewhere that um, luminescent creatures can sometimes sting. And so I think it's likely that he tried on this field trip or another one to pick up a stinging jellyfish that he spotted somewhere in the Mediterranean and learned there again something important by experience. But most famously of all is his careful study of the reproductive habits of golden eagles. He says the large eagle, which is called the Herodias, it's the golden eagle, is rarely found to have anything other than one chick, even though it produces two eggs. This is something well known to um, ornithologists today, that many birds, including eagles, um, produce what's called an insurance egg. They will lay two eggs in case one of the chicks doesn't survive. And when both eggs are hatched, usually one chick will, will kill the other chick or one chick will be thrown out um, of the nest. And so only one chick remains. This is something that Albert observed. It's not something that he was merely told. He says, we have found this out by visiting the nest of a certain eagle for six straight years. Note again the emphasis on the repetition of observation. So in order to rule out the possibility of fluke, we have visited the nest of a certain eagle for six straight years. But he says, it is difficult to gain first-hand experience in such matters because of the height of the mountains on which they build their nests. We gain first-hand experience, he continues, only by being lowered from the cliff on a rope of very great length. 
for this is the usual approach of those in our lands who take falcons and eagles from their nests. So, whether Albert himself or one of his friends was lowered from this rope, he is very interested and willing to take risks um, for the sake of repeatedly observing natural phenomena. Um, he enjoys busting myths as well, I think. So, barnacle geese, uh, according to the animal lore of the time, uh, thanks to a story that, um, uh, that came out of Ireland, thanks to Gerald of Wales, barnacle geese were thought to grow out of out of barnacles or out of trees. There were different versions of the story. And Albert himself says, this is altogether absurd, as I and many of my friends have seen them pair and lay eggs and hatch chicks. So, um, Albert is uh, more than happy to bust a myth. And in this case, it probably would have disappointed many of his confers who convinced themselves that barnacle Greek geese were somehow fish rather than fowl. And so, uh, could be included in the, in the monastic diet, but Albert is more interested in, in the truth of the matter. As well as this, if Albert has no experience of something and he's just heard an opinion somewhere, he is careful to doubt it. Some say, he says, that wasps shed their stings in winter, but this has not been satisfactorily experienced by us, and I think it is false. So he's, he's happy to trust reputable authorities, but not blindly. Um, and he's, when he approves of a certain opinion, it's usually provisionally awaiting further confirmation by experience. When it comes to plants, we find Albert using a similar method. So Albert trusts authorities, certainly, but whenever he's in a position to assess their claims by experience or to expand on what they said by careful description and categorization, he won't hesitate to do so. His major book on plants is the De Vegetabilibus. The book he's commenting on here is called the De Plantis. He thinks it's by Aristotle, but in fact it's by Nicholas of Damascus, a Jewish Aristotelian of the first century. But here again, we see Albert's concern for providing a comprehensive system of categories or genera. Because the base text, the De Plantis, had identified four genera of plants the tree, the bush, the shrub, and the herb. But Albert, very tentatively, adds a fifth, fungi, which is interesting, I think. It shows his concern um, for comprehensiveness and how unafraid he is to uh, correct, according to his own lights, um, the authorities in front of him. He categorizes the parts of plants as well. So the essential parts necessary for the functioning of an individual plant like the sap, the marrow, the nodes, the roots, the wood of trees, the flesh of herbs. Then other parts that aren't essential for the individual to survive, but for the species to survive, like the flower, the fruit, and the seed. And then what he calls inessential elements, like thorns and spines. And then based on these parts, he analyzes all kinds of plants on the basis of whether and where they have these parts, and how these parts appear. This would be called today a morphology of plants. So of trees that have bark, for example, some like the oak and poplar shed their bark by means of vertical cracks, he says, but others like the cherry tree shed their bark by means of horizontal cracks in the bark. Now I mentioned thorns and spines above and you might be wondering 
What's the difference between a thorn and a spine? And Albert actually precisely marks the difference. The spine grows from the epidermis of the plant and so is easily detachable, but thorns grow out from the inside of the plant. And Albert is the first in the history of botany to make this distinction, a distinction that was rediscovered in the 19th century, having been forgotten in the meantime. Albert isn't just interested in the morphology of plants, he's interested in ecology too, the study of the relationship of plants with their environment. And a whole section of his work is about the kinds of environments in which plants struggle or thrive, and the ways in which certain features of plants are a result of their environment or influenced by their environment, which is really fascinating to think about um, in the light of modern um, theories of evolution. Now, just as in his work on animals, Albert um, talks about exotic animals that he hadn't experienced. He also includes here a lot about exotic plants that he could never have encountered himself. The plants that produced cloves and cinnamon, for example. And there's a marked difference between his approach to those plants and European plants. In the former case, of course, he's forced just to trust his most reputable source, usually Avicenna. But when it comes to plants that grow apodnos, as he says, in our part of the world, then he will digress at length, sometimes producing astonishingly detailed descriptions that could only have come from careful personal examination, including, as Gilla Vulmer, uh, an expert um, in medieval botany, notes, including by touching and smelling and tasting plants. So Albert describes how to recognize plants by the taste of the sap or the fruit, by the smell of the bark and the root and the flower. So Albert, in spite of all his busyness, literally took time to smell the roses. There might be some gardeners among you and you might be wondering if Albert has any advice for gardeners and the answer is yes. He includes a whole digression about cultivating plants and even a section on the design of gardens and the design of a garden designed to give pleasure to the senses of sight and smell, a viridaria, a pleasure garden. The whole layout, he said, should be designed so that men and women might sit in the garden and rest pleasurably. Beautiful idea. And for their odour, he recommends planting rue, mint and basil. And for their visual appearance and colour, he suggests violets, columbines, lilies, roses and gladioli. Now, plants are a good bit more pleasurable to the senses than rocks and minerals. But when Albert turns to the study of minerals, He's keen, in this case as well, to rely on his own sensory experience or that of trusted experts, people whose observations carry weight precisely because those observations have been repeated so often. In the case of minerals, for example, even though he was not an alchemist himself, he'll describe the methods of alchemists as he has heard them uh, describe them. And he'll even include detailed explanations with labelled diagrams of their experiments. On page two of your handout, you'll see um, one of these diagrams in a copy of Albert's De Mineralibus. And it's fascinating to see that just like scientific diagrams today, it's labelled A, B, C, D, and so on, with reference in the text to these uh, letters. 
But Albert, once again, he's not just asking learned alchemists. Again and again, he tells us what miners and smeltermen and blacksmiths have told us about the kinds of stones and metals they've seen. And again, here, he went on a field trip. We're not sure when, but at some point in his life, he went on a field trip to visit several different mining districts. On the handout, again, um, you'll see that. Therefore, I shall state, in a manner which can be supported by reasoning, either what has been handed down by philosophers, or what I have found out by my own observations, that you're, you're happy with at this stage. For at one time, I became a wanderer, making long journeys to mining districts, so that I could learn by observation the nature of metals. So again, this curiosity that leads him on long journeys to mining districts. So he describes, for example, what he has seen in copper mines and gold mines. And we see the same attitude throughout his work on minerals. I myself, he, sees, he says, have seen a ruby shine in the dark like a live coal. I myself have seen a magnet drawing iron to itself. I myself found pearls in oysters. He describes a single meal in which he found ten pearls uh, as he was eating oysters. And when he explains how the images of animals can be found in stones, what we know to be fossils, again he's relying on his own extensive experience of observing these fossils. Now, I could go on at length with more examples of Albert's methods in practice, but hopefully by now his method is clear, and a method that is rooted in an astonishingly curious and observative personality. We saw earlier that he was famous for walking everywhere. As Bishop of Regensburg, he was known as Bishop Boots. And I think this habit of slowly passing through varying countrysides is part of what enabled him to take in the rich variety of the natural world. So a warning then to us with our speedy transport and all-consuming screens. In his own lifetime, Albert was known to be special. In his own lifetime, he was already referred to as Albert the Great. But it's worth noting at this point that he was not a controversial figure. The person of Albert himself is enough to debunk this still popular myth of the Middle Ages as a time when curiosity was repressed and ignorance sustained by the power of the church. We find in Albert a pioneering scientific spirit, but there's no sense in which the church sought to suppress his curiosity. All of his research was carried out at the heart of the church, as a believer, a friar, a bishop, papal legate, and so on. Not only was his scientific work institutionally at the heart of the church, but it was also thoroughly integrated into his theological vision. It's important to remember that when he's working on these texts in natural philosophy, he's also producing a great deal of systematic theology, and sometimes he incorporates his scientific discoveries and scientific insights into his theology, especially in his anthropology. His De Homine is really fascinating for that. He's studying the human person, um, man, as the most noble of the animals, but also then in light of theology um, uh, that brings a whole different light um, to this most noble of the animals. Now, we mentioned 
that Albert was known as Albertus Manus, Albert the Great, even in his own life. But then and for several centuries thereafter, he was also known as Albertus Magus. He was associated with magic. Many strange magical and alchemical texts came to be ascribed to Albert, and there were all these fantastical stories about his magical powers to kidnap people and so on. And it's partly for this reason, for these um, texts falsely ascribed to him and these folktales uh, about him, it's partly for these reasons that he was canonized only in the 20th century. So, for example, if you read Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein written about 200 years ago, the young Frankenstein um, is greatly influenced by Albert um, and other occult writers, Paracelsus and Agrippa and so on. It's partly the reading of Albertus Manius in this story, in Frankenstein, that leads him to be interested in um, the idea of revivifying uh, dead bodies and the raising of ghosts and devils um, and so on. Now, thanks to modern scholarship, this image of Albert as a magician, Magus rather than Manius, is well and truly overcome. And Albert emerges now from the scholarship as very much a man of the church and a man of science, a man of faith and a man of reason, a preacher of the word of God who is deeply in love with God's creation. So by the mid 20th century, Albert's reputation having been restored, he was finally canonized by Pope Pius XI in 1931, and he was named patron of natural scientists by Pius XII in 1941. And so if he was associated with the occult by uh, Mary Shelley, a novelist like Walter Miller, writing in the 1950s, thinks of Albert simply as a faithful man of science. So Miller sets his novel, A Canticle for Leibovitz, in a dystopian future in which science itself has been targeted and the church has had to establish religious orders for the preservation of scientific knowledge. And naturally enough, the order in Miller's novel is called the Albertian order. Whatever about dystopian futures, in our present moment, Albert is a vital example for people of faith. It's by looking at Albert's whole life, I think, and the lives of others like him, that we, be, we can begin not only to understand how faith and reason might be consistent, how the big issues, the big conflicts might be resolved, but actually to feel how faith and science might work together. And we can begin to be drawn to such a synthesis in our own lives as students, men and women like Albert who seek truth in the sweetness of friendship. I'm convinced that if inspired by Albert, we walk the roads as he did, exploring the world with him, experiencing the world with him, following his footsteps onto our beaches and bogs, becoming experts in wood and mountains, smelling, seeing, hearing, tasting and touching this world in which we live, then we might just begin to move beyond the proud scientism of our time and move towards a new natural philosophy, rigorous, contemplative and full of wonder.